Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop. It is a pleasure to have you with us today here at the City Club. We are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive, and that's what we are about today. It's September 25th. This is a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. We're very grateful for their support. When COVID hit and shut down everyone's plans back in March, one of the first programs we had to reschedule was with Margaret O'Mara. She's a historian at the University of Washington, and she looks at the intersection of politics and the tech industry. Her unique analysis was on full display in her book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. That book only came out last year, and the tensions between the tech world and the political world have grown more problematic and more challenging since. Those developments have occurred against a backdrop of the COVID pandemic, which has increased our collective reliance on tech companies from Alphabet to Zoom. Alphabet, of course, is Google's parent company, and Zoom is the now ubiquitous video conferencing platform upon which uh, probably the commerce of the entire world relies. And of course, as we have become more reliant on these companies, their value has grown exponentially. In addition to writing the code, Dr. Margaret Amara is the author of Cities of Knowledge and Pivotal Tuesdays. That last book there is about important elections. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times opinion pages, and she is the Howard Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them in. Dr. Margaret Amara, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. It's great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. It is so good to have you. And again, we're sorry that we can't welcome you in person, but um, this will have to do as it suffices. Uh, it has to suffice for so much of what happens these days. Tell me, though, um, very recently we had some hearings in the Senate. We'll start with the, the sort of in the in the present. And it was just last mm -hmm. month, I believe, that um, tech companies and their CEOs were called before the various Senate um, committees. What did that moment represent for America and for the tech industry? Well, I, I think it was a really significant moment. This, this, you know, this is the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, and and it was notable in that you had four of the big CEOs of the five biggest companies um, who were called virtually before before Congress. Um, it was a little, I think probably they got them all in the virtual room in part because they didn't have to fly there and come there and have the photo op with, you know, raising their right hand and, you know, all of the drama that usually accompanies that. But I think what made it so significant was that this is, you know, Silicon Valley tech companies, um, both Silicon Valley and Seattle based tech companies, as well as across the country, have really been favored children of both parties for the last 40 years. One of the reasons that they have um, grown and become as successful as they have has been because of public policies that have advanced the interests and supported the interests of the tech industry, including not regulating it very heavily and allowing a lot of mergers and acquisitions that have allowed it to become so large. 
And so when, um, you know, we certainly there have been moments of friction in the past, but right now there was a real, the mood had changed that both Democrats and Republicans were asking not only tough questions, but um, particularly in the case of some of the Democratic lawmakers, very, very technical, um, technically informed questions that were going into the nuts and bolts of the business in a way that reflected that there's some real serious conversations about regulation um, and containment of some kind of these, especially these large companies and platforms power. That is a uh, departure from the past when, um, I can't remember which senator it was, but who asked Mark Zuckerberg, like, how do you make money? Yeah, <laughs> yes. That was just like two or three um, years ago, I think. That was, that was, that was Chuck Grassley. And it was, yeah, it was, you know, there has, and look, I think that, that the tech industry, very rightfully so, has kind of seen Washington, D.C. is really not understanding what they do. Um, there have been very few people on Capitol Hill over the last several decades who have really tried to grasp the the, the essence of what the computer hardware and software industries are doing and much less where the, the sort of state of the art is and where it's going. And so when you have comments like that, it kind of reinforces this perception that Washington doesn't get it and is a kind of a proof point that um, technologists have used to say, you know, the less the government has to do with our business, the better. But the truth is that the government's always had something, a lot to do with their business. And that's what I tried to spin out in this book. Yeah, I want you to make that case because there is this mythology about about the tech industry, that it's all these, you know, these guys in bootstraps and garages and, you know, and they're just out there just creating stuff and they and it catches fire. And then we get Facebook. And that's not the case. Yeah. It's not the case. It's a it's a both and story, right? So there's the story that um, you know the kind of the myth of the the catch fire myth, the guys in garages um, story of Silicon Valley, which is yes, that is that's not false. You had a lot of guys in garages, but what's missing from that story is this broader context of um, of a society, an American society, including an, an a U.S. national government that was investing in high technologies and in the training of people who were giving people kind of, I like to, the, the, um, I like to talk about it as a sandbox, right? So you have a, you know, think about a, an old fashioned sandbox, wooden box with the sand in it. So in the case of um, starting after world, during and after World War II, the US government starts spending lots of money, not only on science and technology, research and development, most of it related to the Cold War and building weapons, but also the space race and these other kind of big investments and also investing in higher education at the state and the and the national level. So you have, that's kind of creating this incredible sandbox where you, then people can go in there, the entrepreneurs, the scientists, the technologists, they can build sandcastles, they can throw sand at each other, they can do what they want. And I think that's the, the kind of the very uniquely American story that you both, you have this foundation of public investment that starts off in the 50s and 60s as investment in particularly electronics, and in the case of Silicon Valley, small electronics, kind of boosting that industry, and higher education that creates this foundation on which this incredible entrepreneurial economy can grow. Mm -hmm. Or to use a, a tech term, it's not so much a foundation as it is a platform. It's a platform. It's a platform. And it's a platform that, that allowed a lot of flexibility, which I think is a real, just different from other, look, many other countries have invested heavily, even more so to a larger percent in terms of GDP percentage 
than the US in higher ed and R&D. But I think what's different in the US case is that so much of it was decentralized, so much of it was privatized. It, flew to, it, it flowed to universities, it flowed to defense contractors, to, um, to private, the private sector and the academic sector, as well as flowing down through state and local governments. And the consequences, a lot of it was kind of hidden. You don't see all of the, you know, even the people in the system don't realize how much public investment is enabling, enabling them to, you know, learn how to program a computer in college and then go on to work in a, at a computer company or a software company. This is a hidden connection. It's kind of this hidden history of Silicon Valley. But it's very foundational and I think it's super important as we think right now, what is the proper role that governments at all levels should be playing in both not just regulating the, the tech industry, but figuring out what its next generation is going to look like and creating the opportunities for that sandbox to allow a new set of creators, entrepreneurs, et cetera, come in and you know build their castles and throw sand at each other. <laughs> there are a lot of directions that I want to go in this conversation <laughs> because um, locally here in Cleveland for the, for the last two decades, there have been a lot of efforts to try to figure out how do we build that sandbox here? Um, why does Silicon Valley get it all? How do we do this? And in fact, you came to our attention and, and were connected to us through uh, our mutual friend Michael Goldberg, City Club member, who teaches at Case Western Reserve University and looks at startup communities outside of Silicon Valley, wherever they may be around the world. So, mm -hmm. thank you, Michael, for for that. I know I know that Michael's listening. Um, but so I want to get I want to get to that. But I but I feel like there's this this other piece about um, just the lack of self awareness inside of Silicon Valley that. Hey, you didn't actually do this all yourself. That you were reliant on a strong democracy, a, a government uh, that is that has been largely devoted to deregulated free market capitalism or a, or lower regulations than you might find in in other societies, and um, and government. Con oh, and by the way, government contracts that were really lucrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. And. And I like to talk about it, and it's not just R&D. It's not just the things that we think about when we think about funding science or funding STEM or um, that, that what happens in the, particularly in the 25 years after World War II, um, there's this incredible investment in people, um, in education, in higher education. I like to call it this, it's like an escalator of upward mobility. Um, I was struck by when I was um, doing the research for the book and talking to um, people in their in their 80s and 90s who'd been um, among the originals, the, you know, the, who sort of started in the in the industry in the 50s and 60s, ha and and they'd done very well for themselves um, by that point in their lives. But they started off as you know, the reason they end up in the valley in the first place is that they're young guys without connections. All they have is an engineering degree, and many of them got that engin engineering degree on scholarship. They come from Iowa, from Texas, from Cleveland. They come from. They aren't people who are have Ivy League degrees or prep school educations or fathers who work at banks. Those people stayed on the East Coast, and so. I, I, you know, what what happened in post in the post war period? And granted, look, this this escalator was open to white and mostly male, you know, 
engineers. It was it was not open to everybody. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind. But we see, you know, this is just acknowledging that there's been this investment, as you say, not only in a particular sort of encourage sort of the way that the government encourages this entrepreneurial capitalism to grow, but also you know, growing in a in a stable democracy and in a, in a in a nation that is committed to you know uh, these these broader values of education and individual opportunity is critically important. We're talking today with Margaret O'Mara. She is the author of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. She is also the Florence, the I'm sorry, the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. I'm not sure where I got Florence from. Pardon me. Florence but if, Keller. <laughs> but if you have questions for her, please uh, text them to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them into the second half of the program. And I wanted to mention, too, that if you're interested in a copy of her book, The Code, um, we'd encourage you to pick it up at Max Bax on Coventry, where you members get a 20% discount. You can find out more about that at Max Bax itself or on our website, cityclub.org. Margaret O'Mara, we were talking before about the, you know, the possibility of future regulation uh, coming mm-hmm. out of these Senate hearings. Um, what do you think is going to happen? That's, a, that's hard to say. I mm-hmm. think a lot's going to depend on what plays out. Um, in this this autumn's election and and kind of where Washington finds itself in um, in 2021, but what's really significant to me is in the last several years when Democrats and Republicans can can agree on very few things, <laughs> um, that there is a bipartisan momentum to doing some kind of regulation or some creating some sort of counterbalance to not just the tech industry writ large power, but particularly the power of the very, very large companies at the top. Um, the four companies that appeared before the House Judiciary Subcommittee in, you know, this summer, um, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google in particular. Funnily enough, Microsoft, which was the target of a US antitrust case in the 90s, was not at that hearing. <laughs> um, and a part of it has a, is a reflection of the business that Microsoft is in. And I think it's also a reflection of the fact that Microsoft um, learned some pretty powerful lessons from being under the, you know, being in the DOJ's sites um, 20 plus years ago, which is that you can't ignore Washington policymakers. And look, I don't think any, I think that particularly the largest tech companies are very much aware of the regulatory threats. They are building some of, they have some now some of the biggest lobbying operations in Washington. They are very, very engaged and they are, you know, you have the CEOs um, like Mark Zuckerberg on the record saying, yeah, we need to be regulated, but the regulation, you know, they would like to help set the terms of the regulations. So we're going to have a, I think we're entering into a really interesting period where the question is not what if regulation is going to happen, but what is that going to look like and on whose terms? And it's super, it's thorny because big tech, we like to think about it as this, you know, we, we call it, it's this shorthand, but it actually consists of companies that are wildly different in their business models. And, you know, Amazon and Facebook have nearly nothing in common other than software engineers. I mean, I may be overstating the case a little bit, but not too much. I mean, they're very, very different businesses. And so, you know, thinking about how, you know, there are different remedies. And and also, I think one of the important things about recognizing this long political history of government involvement in tech 
makes the idea of regulation going forward not as it should not be as scary and it is not as sort of abnormal this isn't an abrupt change the u.s government has always been setting the terms by which tech can grow and it is set pretty generous terms and um, in some cases is it it has allowed these platforms to have you know kind of i like another metaphor i use is the runaway train like you start this incredible thing you grow, 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 it gains momentum. And all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, I can't stop this incredibly powerful. Those are the four thing big, you mentioned those companies. Those are, the, I think, the four biggest companies in America, right? They are, well, in certain terms of market cap. Um, the, the five, right now, the five biggest, if you add in Microsoft, they have a GDP larger than, I think, every nation except the US, China, and I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's they're huge. And it, and <laughs> they're when massive. You, and when you think about what they do, the services they provide, I mean, they are essentially they've become infrastructure, um, mm-hmm. software infrastructure. Yes. Right. We we live our lives through these through these things. I'm talking to you on a platform. I've got Google Chrome up, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and we advertise and market this event through Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. as well as these airwaves that are brought to you by uh, mm-hmm. by the public, by you know government subsidy through public radio and all of that. Not mm-hmm. that public radio is mm-hmm. government subsidized in that way. I just mean the airwaves are belong to the public. The airwaves. Um, but this, uh, but the technology that you're talking about. I mean, it's all. It really is the infrastructure of our lives in many ways, um, mm-hmm. and yet it is treated by the uh, by the by management and ownership of these companies as. Um, no, we're just a just another platform. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, part of this has to do with. I mean, think about how quickly this is all played out. Um, and and let's go back to the last time that Washington had a sort of big conversation about regulation of the internet, which was in the the mid to late nineties. Um, and the and this is the Telecom Reform Act of nineteen ninety six, um, which one component of which was the um, famous um, now now well-known, used to be arcane, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is the, which is the rule that, um, as interpreted, has kind of been interpreted as you can, have a plat- you can have an internet platform like Facebook or YouTube, and you are not held responsible for what a third party puts on that platform. So if you and I decide we're going to put some crazy video on YouTube, YouTube and, and Alphabet and Google are not responsible for, um, for what, what, might, what might happen. Um, th- now, if we th- sort of, in, and if we think about what was the internet like in 1996, first of all, the community, the, the Section 230 is kind of a response to um, the big, um, big when the big platforms and providers were CompuServe and Prodigy. Remember those? That's like, no. you know, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, this was when AOL was the biggest game in town, when everyone mm-hmm. was getting the free CDs in the mail. That, that's, that's, that's the world. Mark Zuckerberg, I think, was probably in middle school still when that happened. Google didn't exist. Amazon was had been in business one year, and it was selling just books on the Internet, and pretty much Jeff Bezos was going to the post office to mail them. It was not that big of a business. People were sending check, mailing checks to Amazon's office um, because they didn't want to do transactions online because it was too weird and scary. So we're in a different world and the regulation, you know, is a is a mismatch to that. And these companies, I think what makes it also a challenge 
is the part of what makes these companies so successful is the mentality that drove them to grow, you know, kind of this zero to one grow fast, um, as Facebook used to say, move past, move fast and break things. But, you know, I think that that is not something that is a brand new circa 2005 you know, idea. This is something very deeply rooted in the way the Valley has worked. The Valley has been successful from the semiconductor industry forward in the 1960s by moving fast and getting to market fast and iterating fast and growing, growing, growing. So you become the market. And the people who are the advisors, mentors, venture capitalists who are putting money into companies like Google and Facebook in the early years, they come from that that world, you know, they are, they, they, they know what the track, they know how to be successful. And so we've gone, you know, part of the challenge is you have a business culture that was super successful in building computer hardware and software um, for a long time at a time when these were obviously important businesses, but they weren't central to our communications and political systems. They were just business tools. Like they were not that they were a thing. And in the last 10 to 15 years, these platforms now have become the platforms for everything. And particularly in our COVID year, right? I mean, there's a reason the quarterly earning, it's been a good year for Microsoft and Facebook and um, because, and for, and Amazon, because we're so reliant now on their products and platforms since the everyone, you know, so many people are working from home. And I think we've seen in the last 10 years, in particular the last two election cycles, really that social media has become almost more important than traditional media in terms of political yeah. campaigning. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I want to come back to uh, something I, I sort of laid out before as one of the possible paths we could go down in our conversation as about what Steve Case refers to as the rise of the rest. Um, mm -hmm. So much of tech uh, business success is concentrated in Silicon Valley. Cleveland has been trying for years to create some sort of entrepreneurial tech entrepreneurial ecosystem with some successes, but but really um, but also a lot. Probably a, the list of challenges is probably much longer than the list of successes. And mm -hmm. and if I'm wrong, people will correct me on Twitter right now. Um, but uh, what are you seeing around the country? Because I know that Cleveland is not alone in trying to stimulate the tech economy locally. Mm hmm. Um, this is really interesting because I had been, I will say that I have changed my tune over the, I've been writing about the Valley now for almost <laughs> since the dot-com era. And, um, and I, I used to have a kind of, Hey, you can't build another one of these. And, you know, everyone who's built, trying to build a Silicon something, this was a very distinctive, um, product of a distinctive time and place. And that was kind of the end of my argument. That's still my argument. I think the history of Silicon Valley is quite, it's quite clear. It is very much a product of this moment in American history and of particular local conditions um, that were present at the at the creation and, and ongoing. But what's been super interesting in the last 10 years is how I think the whole geography of tech has has tr has truly globalized and you have more um, significant tech clusters growing in other places, not only in other places in the United States, but around the world. Um, and I think that's a function of um, the, the nature of the industry that, and the, the maturation of the technology itself. I mean, one sort of practical matter, um, we, you know, now we have, you know, broadband internet everywhere. Now you can have a powerful, you know, a nice laptop and you can connect, you know, you can do a lot with it. And also, um, thank you, big tech companies, you have things like AWS and Microsoft Azure and these huge cloud computing 
services where a startup no longer needs to have $5 million in the bank to rent space and to buy server blades and have all of that computing power in-house. Now you can just get some space up in the cloud and you can do a lot. So I think that the, the price of entry has, has dropped. And the other thing that's, and, and it's more mobile. So you can be in a place, um, this isn't necessarily a Cleveland um, uh, uh, advantage, but I think it's a, say a New York City or London advantage where you have very, very high priced real estate where people have tiny apartments, but actually you don't need that many square feet to have a startup. And so I think that's why we see this um, becoming more um, diverse. But what's really, I think the other thing that's playing in here that does point towards a, a further dispersion into other metro areas is two things. One is the, the already present pre-20 existence of just overcrowding and overstuffing in the, the, the places where tech has grown, particularly the Bay Area, also to some degree Seattle, which has become considerably more expensive to live and to operate in than it was you know, a generation ago. So people are just, they want to get out. They want to like, I want to, I want to be able to buy a house for less than a million dollars. I want to be able, and you have a new generation, a younger generation that kind of can come in and can rent an apartment when they're young and single and have roommates. And then they kind of get to the ceiling where even if they're making a nice big tech salary, they're sort of limited and where they can go. And so there was that pent up demand. And then now you have COVID. Now you have this extraordinary work from home experiment at scale in which big tech companies that had been very wedded to you got to come to the office, you got to come to the campus, you got to come here, eat your free snacks and be there in person. We do not like telecommuting. And that has flipped. So you have companies like Twitter saying, don't ever need to come back. You have companies like Facebook saying, yeah, don't really need to come back. But Facebook's also still buying real estate and, and, and investing in campuses. So that is I think that creates this geographic flexibility where you have a whole cohort of talented people that want to live in, they, they're looking for the quality of life. They're looking for a more affordable place. And so that's going to unlock things that create space for metros that haven't had, for, their, for, for ones with smaller clusters to grow larger and attract, you know, recruit and retain more of the talent that they need, because this is a talent game at the end of the day. We're talking with historian Dr. Margaret O'Mara. She's the Howard Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. And we're talking about her book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. You can join us with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them in. I neglected to mention again that you are listening to the City Club Friday Forum. And I'm Dan Malthrop. And your, your comment Comments there uh, speak directly to um, the question, or sort of tee up very well this question from one of our listeners: Is this the moment that cities like Cleveland are poised to attract remote tech workers from San Francisco and other places who are working for Twitter and Google and so forth? And what is the economic impact of attracting these digital nomads rather than the companies themselves? Mm. That's a really interesting question. And I don't know if we know the answer yet because you haven't had this dispersal, this kind of, again, remote work at scale. Um, I think, you know, although historians are very reluctant to make predictions because we, we know that those who make predictions often, those don't often come true. But what's interesting here is that certainly we will have a number of people and companies that return to the office and ask their employees to return to the office. But we are seeing um, we're going to see a lot of companies embracing remote work um, per, 
permanently, both for fiscal financial reasons um, and, and also because they can. And so having a, um, and, and one of the real pressures of tech growth in places where it has grown, um, we've seen it, I've seen it here in, in my town of Seattle, we see it in the Bay Area, um, where these big companies come and they have this big outsized presence and they have all these high paid employees and they push other people out. And there's a lot of, um, certainly in both San Francisco and Seattle, there's been a lot of local backlash against that growth. And so what if you had the, I think that's an interesting question posed here. Like, what if you just had the employees and not the companies? Is that a softer landing? Um, I think the other thing that this, you know, that thinking about expanding the geography, um, we need to keep in mind, and I think here's an opportunity for a place like Cleveland, is Silicon Valley is not a really great city. It doesn't work well as a city, right? transportation networks, public transit, you know, anyone, if anyone here listening or watching has been out to the Bay Area and ridden the Caltrain system and been like, wait, it only goes to the airport, but doesn't really. And then you have to take another train to the airport and you have another train to Berkeley. Doesn't work. And you have the cost of housing. You have a lot of things that have not just, it just, when you, when you have a string of suburban, small suburban towns that become a giant economic area, it, it they don't work very well. So here's the places with mature infrastructure have an opportunity to really play, play that up. And I think also the other thing that doesn't work about Silicon Valley and something that's been talked a lot about in we as we talk about tech is who, who has benefited from it and who has been hurt and who is included in that innovation economy. Silicon Valley companies are, they have an abysmal record on diversity, both gender diversity um, and, and diversity of underrepresented minorities, particularly black Americans um, and also Latino, Latino and, and other sort of underrepresented minorities. It's just, it hasn't gotten better um, and even despite talking about it a lot. Your book lays so, out some of the conditions that created that mm -hmm. um, abysmal record. Can you describe those a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's a you know Silicon Valley started off as a very small, um, very geographically you know isolated, um, very tightly knit place where personal and professional connections overlapped, um, where you lived next door to your coworker, where your kids played in the same little league. Um, it also was a string of almost entirely white, um, middle, upper middle class, middle class uh, post-war suburbs, kind of the classic you know California suburbia. Um, suburbs that had, um, you know, that very deliberately excluded people of color from living there. Um, this is this is the ugly legacy of of suburban growth in the 50s and 60s and beyond. And 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 so you had, you know, it's it's the great advantage of the valley and also it's Achilles heel. Um, the great advantage and the real secret of Silicon Valley is this network is the fact that you had people who were willing to, you know, had this very specialized um, talent and specialized experience that were. Uh, working with one another, then as some of them gained wealth, were investing in one another, um, were making bets on, you know, the next generation based on kind of, oh, this person looks like someone who's going to be successful. And sometimes that was, you know, you were, you were basing it on these kind of instinct in your gut, you know, going with your gut, uh, I, I'm going to make a bet on this guy. And it was harder to make a bet on somebody who was, you know, didn't look like or didn't come from the same background, didn't come from, didn't go to MIT or Stanford, didn't um, look like someone who, you know, didn't look like someone you could have a beer with or go on, <laughs> go on a corporate retreat with. And that exclusion, you know, no one put a sign on the door of these Silicon Valley venture com companies, uh, firms saying, you know, no women allowed or no people of color allowed. 
But that's effectively what happens. And it's, it's human, this is human bias and human behavior. And I think by acknowledging that, then we get, you know, Silicon Valley, another kind of myth of Silicon Valley is, oh, it's just a meritocracy. We just care about if you're a good programmer and you have technical talent. It, sure. Any, does like, anyone it was, actually it, still believe that? Um, I still hear it with some regularity. Really? I, well, and look, there's a lot to be, you know, one thing the Valley did at a time in when it was when, you know, kids from a small farm town in Iowa didn't have much of a shot at some big Fortune 50 company, right? Who didn't, who, where you, you know, where you, where you were a real outsider. It did create opportunity for people who had nothing but raw engineering talent to be incredibly successful. And also allowed, gave room for people who were weird and rule breakers and antisocial and couldn't like, you know, function in a normal office yeah. environment. It kind of allowed them space to grow. So I think with those, those proof points in mind, the Valley has kind of over, has, there's a sort of a collective amnesia about, or, or, or sort of denial that, oh, actually our own, bi look, we're all human beings. Like we all have our biases. We, mm -hmm. we approach things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pattern recognition matters a lot in the choices we make, and particularly if you're in the ris risky business of investing in very advanced technology that has no proven market yet. You wanna invest in the people, and so you want people who you feel are a good bet. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I think those things, you know, I think this is, this is a really important thing to kind of grasp when we're thinking about how we diversify going forward, recognizing all of these structural and historical things that caused the lack of diversity. It's not just, oh, we need more to attract more, you know, people of color to engineering programs or, oh, we need to more um, women VCs. Th those are definitely parts of the answer for sure. But you actually need to recognize that there's a systemic, there's systemic exclusion. And then also recognize, okay, you can't get away with just, okay, we're going to try and do better, which I think has been the attitude of many people with power and tech is like, okay, we get you. We're going to work on that rather than saying, no, you really, really need to change what you're doing. And it's in your market. There's a market advantage to having a diverse team in the room <laughs> saying, hey, what if we built a product for this market? You know, there are whole markets in the world that the that the U.S. companies have not been able to tap. And when they have, they have been disruptive in, in the wrong way. Um, and, and having that broader understanding and sensitivity is not just for, you know, speaking, building technology for everyone in the United States, but around the world, because these are global companies. Margaret O'Mara is the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. It is a work of history recent history, modern political and economic history. You can join our conversation with a text to 330-541-5794. Just text your question to 330-541-5794. Or if you're on Twitter, one of those giant tech companies, then tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. Another question for you, Margaret. Do you believe that actively encouraging and protecting potentially competitive startups could be an effective method of addressing market dominance of the big four? That's a great question. Um, and it's one that the, you know, the immediate answer from the big four and for many quarters in tech is, you, you know, we don't pick winners. We let winners emerge. <laughs> and um, then we buy them I and think, shut them down. And then we buy them <laughs> and shut them down. I, I think that there's, I think it's less a matter of identifying particular companies because um, that is, it is difficult to pick winners. It's a very, it's very fast moving. I mean, that's, this is another real challenge with any sort of tech regulation is that 
the tech moves on, right? So you can't really sort of address, to address the, pro, the, the, the technology of 2020, by the time that regulation gets enacted, it's gonna be 2024 and the technology is gonna be several generations on. I think it's a less, a, I like to think of about it less than um, particular companies or technologies and thinking about investment in people um, and thinking about the broad, the longer pipeline. Um, and this, I think a real, really important piece of the tech the, the, the formula, the why Silicon Valley became the way it did, was higher education. I talk about Stanford a lot in the book. And Stanford is a private university. It is a very now a very wealthy private university. It was um, it was pretty doing pretty well 70 years ago, but it was by no means like a number one, you know, world class university. And in fact was trying to figure out creative sources of revenue. Turns out the Cold War military industrial complex was a really great one. And one thing that Stanford did was um, kind of remake its whole curriculum to build up physics, to build up electronics, and but not just a matter of like, we're gonna develop technologies that spin out and commercialize, but we are going to train people for industry, for this very advanced industry that is um, that that doesn't have you know things like microwaves, not the ovens, but the microwaves in terms of the, the basic technology of communication. Microwaves, radar, small electronics, silicon semiconductors. Stanford was developing training programs that were kind of approaching that state of the art. They were training the people rather than building the technologies. So I think the answer to you know how do you create space for innovation? First, you, I think the other thing is you, you kind of force, you can't let the big, the big guys keep all the goodies. Another really consequential thing that happens in the 1950s is, um, is something that happens outside of, of Silicon Valley. It happens with AT&T. Um, AT&T is, you know, the Ma Bell, that's still Ma Bell. It, you know, later AT&T is broken up, but that doesn't happen until the 80s. From the 1914 through the early 80s, AT&T was the telephone monopoly. And it had, as a consequence, it had one of the most, the richest and most um, uh, sort of transformative industrial research labs, Bell Laboratories, um, of, of the modern era. Bell Labs is where the transistor was invented, the transistor that is the, you know, the core technology, the microchip, the, the integrated circuit, everything that comes after it. This is the beginning of the digital age is the transistor. And um, Bell, in 1956, so Bell Labs was a giant company that was always trying to get outside its lane, right? It was constantly getting, like, it was supposed to, the, basically the U.S. government said, you can do telephones, you cannot do other types of communication. All you do is telephones. And AT&T being a big, you know, for-profit company, you know, good capitalists, they were like, but what about computers? What about this? So they kept on trying to get into, especially after the transistor was invented, they were like, holy mackerel. And, um, and so after a sort of late 40s, early 50s foray and trying to kind of sneak into the, the growing computer market, um, the, the Department of Justice said, nope, you can't do that. And as a consequence, we're gonna put you under this consent decree that requires you to license the transistor for free and to license subsequent related technologies for cheap. And Gordon Moore, who was a co-founder of Intel, who was the guy who put his name on Moore's Law, this, I mean, he's kind of a giant of Silicon Valley. He later said, you know, we probably wouldn't have had a silicon semiconductor industry in the Valley without that consent decree. So to think about how you encourage startups. So two things, one is invest in people, make sure there's this incredible pipeline of, of people who are ready to, you know, to build the startups, to create the startups for, for advanced technology, invest in the sort of the, the basics, the foundation. 
And then also make sure that the big rich companies have to sh share, <laughs> um, have, and, and they can still be big and rich. To be clear, AT&T kept on making plenty of money. Like it was, this didn't hobble AT&T, but it created space for the things created in this industrial research lab to be shared widely and for a whole host of companies to grow on this foundational technology. So what would that look like applied to now? What is the consent decree, hypothetical thought experiment here, right? What's the consent decree that yeah. Facebook should be under that, uh, that is a similar <laughs> sort of thing? Or, and, or is this going to get you in too much trouble? Yeah, it might be. It might be <laughs> no, I, I think. Well, I think it's 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 hard. I think there are a lot of. Um, I think it's a question of what's being. Um, it isn't just a matter of developing technology. It's also a matter of how you know. I think in a way, the 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 conversation around antitrust right now um, is somewhat analogous to a conversation not in the 1950s, but going further back to the first decades of the 20th century with this question of these, um, where you had another set of very high tech, new economy companies that had grown very fast, created entire markets. Those companies were railroads, steel, oil, right? That was high tech, that was the new economy then. And, um, and what happens sort of retroactively is the government comes in and, and it breaks them up. Now, I'm, I'm, I think that breaking, but it also um, creates sort of regulation. And, and again, this is a, where the, the example of AT&T is a good one. AT&T was not broken up. Um, Standard Oil was broken up. AT&T was not. Um, but AT&T had to kind of go on as a regulated monopoly kind of subject to government oversight. And so one of those two things, you know, and I think that within these large tech companies, people in, in the leadership of these tech companies understand that, that that's, you know, it's not a matter of if regulation will happen, it's how it will happen and when it will happen um, and what sort of, but one of the things that the U.S. antitrust system has done, it's, it's, it's more often regulated than broken companies up. And it's also, um, you know, it is, it is done it with the profit-making needs of the companies in mind, much to the distress of some, you know, reformers who would have liked to have seen, um, you know, John D. Rockefeller ended up making more money after Standard Oil was broken up. Um, if for some reason a hypothetical political future breaks up Amazon, there is a future in which Jeff Bezos fortune grows even larger with it with but you know one one never knows but th there's there's a um you know this is a capitalist democracy even and and i can't you know even though the the mood of the country is swinging um shifting leftward um after shifting rightward for the last 40 years um 40 plus years there's you know that there's a lot of ways that these, you know, you, you can have a both and where you can have a more regulated tech economy and also have companies and a new set of companies that are allowed to be successful. Well, you've artfully dodged the actual question, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, the, it, it leads, though, to this next question from a listener. And if you do have a question, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Does corporate social responsibility need to be redefined for big tech so that we can modify their behavior, problematic social media, without regulation that will always lag behind the technology anyway? So I'm also thinking uh, in, in this, too, about the, um, you know, the idea that Facebook was supposed to connect everybody, 
bring about democratic revolutions everywhere, that kind of thing, and has really done more to undermine democracy, perhaps, than promote it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but that I last think part was really my addition to the question. The that was your, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the bigger question of corporate response, I think the questioner sort of, I think the, the, the implication I see here is it's, it's, you know, it's tech, and it's really a broader question of corporate responsibility writ large. You know, yeah. about a year ago, the Business Roundtable, the business organization, put out a, a memo signed by leaders of many, many companies, including some tech companies, saying we need to move beyond um, shareholder capitalism, this idea, sort of Milton Friedman-esque idea that the, the biggest, the most important thing is, is your stockholders and your share price. Mm -hmm. um, and a year later, um, you know, they're, they're, there's not a lot that's changed, that actually one could argue that COVID created an opportunity for corporate, the, the corporate world, both in the United States and elsewhere, to really step back and do something, you know, sort of change the rules and do things differently and have different priorities. And that did not happen. In fact, some of the things that, you know, sort of things like diversity inclusion initiatives got drawn back on. And part of it, I think it's the, it's this harsh reality of it's very easy to write a letter. It's very difficult, especially when you have, a, you know, Q2 and Q3 that are just bloodbaths. <laughs> if you don't have a lot of cash on hand, all those things, it's very hard to kind of do the right thing when you have these, these existing pressures and the leaderships, you know, what they're, what they're hired to do is to deliver um, a certain, you know, to, to certain metrics. That being said, I think tech... Um, Tech has an opportunity and a responsibility, I think, for two, for two reasons. One is, in, in, in distinction from many, many other companies and other industries, including ones that are giant companies with you know, huge workforces, um, the, the biggest tech companies have an enormous cash, amount of cash on hand. They are just sitting on nice little piles of money. Um, they have ability to invest. Um, and I know it's not endless. And I know people are like, well, it's not really, we're not really that rich. But really, like mm -hmm. relative to even some really big Fortune 50 names, they have more cash on, cash on hand. Which I think gives, there is a, you know, an argument that, okay, so can you be, if you're the change the world, we're a different sort of capitalism companies, show us how, how you do that. I think there's a real opportunity to do that. Um, and I think the other thing is, is the, the role that they are playing in shaping our public discourse and um, and something that that is just cannot be denied and and something where the things that make their products so successful also have these these side effects and and that is a real mm -hmm. it's a real bind and it's and it's not just the companies we know of it's also other you know there are other big silicon valley companies that are contributing to this I was just yesterday speaking with uh, an investment manager who, who works on creating a socially responsible investment pool. And he told me Facebook's not in it. Mm. Um, several years ago, I think five years ago, Facebook would have been in it, right? Because they're not, mm -hmm. you know, an oil and gas producer yeah. or something like that. But today, mm -hmm. because of, he said, because of the, the ways in which the platform has been used to disrupt democracy, it's not in it. It's not a socially responsible mm -hmm. investment. Um, mm -hmm. It's certainly a profitable investment, though, which I guess is mm -hmm. that's the point. Here's um, another question for you. What about the role of government and donors to step in where there are funding gaps in communities such as Cleveland, create where there are nonprofits such as Jumpstart that have been created, which I'm assuming that you have at least passing familiarity with? Mm -hmm. It seems these organizations and programs are not needed in quote, healthy ecosystems like Silicon Valley. Do we have too many nonprofits in cities like Cleveland trying to fill the gaps? Hmm. 
Well, if you go to Silicon Valley, you'll see a lot of um, government and nonprofit leaders who are like, why aren't these Silicon Valley titans spending more money in their backyard? Um, uh, because there are real needs here. And so I think if we see fewer, there are plenty of organizations in Silicon Valley, but they're fewer than in some other places. And if you see fewer, fewer investments in sort of local, big local philanthropic investments in the Valley, it, it's partially because you have wealth that's decided that they want to, you know, address problems in sub-Saharan Africa rather than, you know, uh, San Mateo. I think that um, the, and the, the questioner was sort of getting at this idea that, that access to capital in a place like, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the, the startup ecosystem, access to capital mm-hmm. in a place like Cleveland okay. has always long been identified as a problem. We have a lot of nonprofit organizations and philanthropic organizations and philanthropic donors that invest heavily in health and human services and things of that sort. Um, it's very hard to start up from, you know, my, based on conversations with with startup founders. It's very hard to do mm-hmm. that in a place like Cleveland because there isn't the same access mm-hmm. to capital, which requires the mm-hmm. or, or the creation of places like Jumpstart. Yeah. OK, that's it. Yeah. I, well, I think the access to capital question is really interesting because uh, what, what happens historically is the capital, the investors follow the, follow the companies. Right. So in the very beginning of, the, of Silicon Valley, you had you didn't have a venture community. The venture community actually was mostly East Coast based. You had significant venture capitalists in places like Cleveland. <laughs> um, uh, you, they were and they were, um, you know, so that before there was a significant there were a few VC firms. But the real, you know, where the initial money comes from in the Valley is, um, you know, people who are the money managers for the Whitney's and Rockefellers and people who are in Chicago and people who are in Ohio and people who are in New York. Uh, and so the venture, the venture world kind of grows in uh, along Sand Hill Road, which is sort of the traditional cap sort of center of, of, of Silicon Valley venture. Um, it's these are firms founded by mostly by people who are first or second generation companies um, that have good have exits and they go on to start their own firms and and they're usually you know using other LPs money they're using some of their own money but it's mostly other people's money and uh, and they're using their operational expertise to build on so I think part of the answer is time that capital um, some people are like oh we need more VC like pretty much every region that isn't the Bay Area is like, we need more VC firms. And my answer is no, you have the companies and then you, and then the the more, more capital will come. That being said, the seed capital is the very, very early stage. And, and right now that, you know, the investment landscape is not just VCs, traditional VCs, it's also, you know, angels, it's um, accelerators, it's, it's all these, all these sort of different forms of, of investment. And I think that super early seed stage and maybe a round is, is useful to have locally, particularly if you're trying to bring in people who don't fit the mold who don't kind of present on, you know, the traditional model of this is someone who's going to, you know, what, when we think of techno- technology entrepreneur, that's that person. And then I think there's another an, another core competency that a place like Cleveland can build on and get an edge over Silicon Valley, which is still way too myopic when it comes to who they think is a good bet, way too myopic. And so where you see minority entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs finding money, it's outside the valley they're finding it in other places. 
Well, when you, you say way too myopic, I also think often occasionally misguided. And I think of the Juicero mm-hmm. example or the Theranos example. <laughs> as Those are two yeah. of my favorites um, when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, cautionary tales in venture capital yeah. investing. Um, here's another question for you. Based on the history of how Silicon Valley developed, where do you think the next center of economic innovation and um, economic energy will happen? And in what sector, if not tech? Uh, a great question. I don't know, but I know it will happen. Um, a century ago, Detroit was the most innovative city in the world, right? It was the high-tech capital of America. Um, Detroit still has a heck of a lot going on, but Detroit was, you know, when people think, oh, what's the most innovative place in the world, they might not say Detroit. Silicon Valley one day one day will be Detroit, um, just as, you know, Manchester once was the innovation capital of the world in the 19th century and then, you know, moved on. And um, you know, Renaissance Florence, et cetera, et cetera. It will move on. Um, where that's going to be, um, I don't know, but I think that it will be something that is, um, it's, you know, the tech will be more broadly defined. We're kind of moving beyond um, computer. First, it was computer hardware um, was the most important thing. Then software was sort of recognized as the most important thing. And um, now we're, you know, we're, we have whole new realms of, you know, artificial intelligence, of, you know, quantum computing, of the sort of next generation computing. But also, I think it's a matter of what's not just the technology and the product, but what sort of ecosystem do we want to be our model for um, aspirational capitalism, for lack of a better phrase. You know, Silicon Valley, you know, putting Silicon Valley as the model for this is what every company should be. This is what an entrepreneur should aspire to be. Um, we're realizing now the, the the faults of that. There's obviously been extraordinary things that have been created. Look, I have a supercomputer on my wrist. This is unbelievable what the, the American tech sector has been able to produce over the last seven decades. It is mind-blowing. But there also have been, you know, no technological advancement comes without costs. As we, you know, going back to Detroit, you know, the internal combustion engine, no one thought it was going to have all the the effects that it did when it was first being developed 120 years ago. And so what's the next thing? I think, you know, think about what the next grand challenges are. You know, if the grand challenge of of 1950 was um, competing with the Soviets on science and technology, building electronics, electronically driven weaponry um, that was going to um, enable America to, you know, compete in the in the digital and electronic and the nuclear age. That was one grand challenge. Now we have grand challenges of global pandemics, of of climate change, um, primarily. I mean, that's what I'd like to see. (laughs) That's what I'd like to see all this intellectual energy being invested in, because these are the next grand challenges that not just the U.S., but the globe is going to have to reckon with. But often those grand challenges, the focus on those challenges have been incentivized by government spending. Correct. Correct. And it is not, you know, going back to philanthropy writ large, even though these companies and their leaders have a lot of money to say that, okay, Jeff Bezos, fix it. Mm -hmm. um, That is part of the answer. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos alone cannot do this. And they're, and, and we need government involved. Well, and I think the vaccine development that we've been seeing taking place over the last four months is a really good example. Margaret Amara, our time is up. You've been amazing. Your book is called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And uh, thank you for for telling us some stories today and helping us understand this world we live in. Hey, it was great being with you. Thanks so much. Next time in Cleveland, please. 
Thank you as well for joining us for our Friday Forum with Margaret O'Mara. She's the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. I should mention that if you'd like to get a copy of her book, The Code, uh, Max Bax on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights will give you a 20% discount if you're a City Club member. Thanks also to our members, sponsors, donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more about them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next Friday, October 2nd, we will host our, an- our annual Annisfield Wolf Forum featuring Dr. Eric Foner. He's the recipient of the 2020 Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. A professor of history as well. He is the author of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. A couple of quick notes as well. We are launching next week a project called Five Days for Democracy. It's a collaboration with Cuyahoga County's nine library systems in which we invite you to spend just a little bit of time each day for five days thinking about what democracy means to you and why it's important. You can check it out and sign up at cityclub.org slash five days. Also, last week, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. Our second episode about unprecedented challenges that we face features conversations with former George W. Bush speechwriter Peter Weiner and Francis Moore LePay and many others. You can check it out at democracyunchained.io. That's it for us. Have a great weekend. Thank you for joining the Friday Forum. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.